Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Come on, is anybody else excited to worship Jesus today? To be at church? Yeah, you guys are looking good today. If you're new to Vox, welcome. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Every one of our locations from Greater Stanford all the way up to Worcester, we love you. We are grateful for you. Glad that you've joined us. Can we just say good morning to our whole church, Brantford? Good morning. Good morning, Hartford. Good morning, North Haven. Good morning, Springfield. If you're new to Vox, one church, nine locations, and soon to be 11. So uh, please be praying. Yeah, please be praying about these upcoming church plants in the fall and uh, pay attention to the calendar. There are all types of dates coming up, worship services in Clinton, in New Britain, and so excited about all that God's going to do in the weeks ahead. And we're glad that you're here. Go ahead and look at that person next to you and tell them, I'm glad I sat near you. Come on, just tell them, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I sat near you. Yeah. Yeah, we're in a teaching series, friends, called Wild. Was anybody blessed by Mike's message last week on Jacob? If you didn't hear it, I encourage you to jump online. And review it. It's been uh, it's been just an awesome series so far. Looked at Abraham, looked at Jacob, and so we're walking through the Old Testament. If you're new to the Old Testament, uh, this is a good series for you because it kind of gets you familiar with some of the stories. You can put up my little timeline. And so we talked about Abraham and as the father of faith, right? And then last week we heard about Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And then from there we're going to move into the kings and the new season of Israel, where they're in the Promised Land. Joshua leads them into the Promised Land. And then Saul is the first king, and David is the second. We'll learn more about David today. But from there, we'll go all the way through the prophets, and it'll lead us all the way up to Jesus. So in six weeks, sort of a flyover of the Old Testament and what God has prepared for us in Christ. And how everything really does lead to Jesus. And so if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to these stories, it's important to start to put the pieces together because it will actually strengthen your faith in Christ and show you that God's been up to something through all of history. This is not something new, but he's been preparing for all time that we might know Christ and through Christ know God. And so a powerful, powerful series. Today we have a very, very special treat. So one of my dearest friends, someone I love very much, is here with us today. If you've not met Lance Witt, Lance has served in ministry for over 40 years, been married to his wife, Connie, for 45 years this year. Lance has been uh, a senior pastor. He's been an executive pastor. He was executive pastor at Saddleback Church with Rick Warren in California for a number of years, has written a number of books. One of his, uh, one book he wrote called Replenish was huge in my life, really uh, a pulse check for pastors and leaders to get their hearts right but he has a number of really helpful books, and uh, he's been a mentor to me, to my wife, to our leaders, been a dear friend for a number of years. He also serves on our board of directors, and so he's one of the leaders here at Vox and pouring into some of us that are on the ground. And so I asked Lance if he would come and share with us today, and he very graciously said yes. So can you give him, like, the biggest, we love you, Vox Church welcome in the history. Come on, every location, Hartford, Middletown, here in Brantford, love you. Thank you so much. It's very kind. I am honored to be back at Vox this weekend, and 
I just love, last time I was in this building, it was just a shell. And it's awesome to see what has happened uh, just with this facility and as you guys get ready to launch new churches around this region. I love seeing what God is doing through you in this whole part of, of New England. And over the past few years, my wife Connie and I have developed a very wonderful friendship with Pastor Justin, with Chrissy, and uh, we have just fallen in love with them. And I know you know what a unique gifting they have and an anointing on their life, right? And uh, I get the privilege of working with a lot of churches and leaders around the country, and I just want you to know how blessed you are to have such a great team leading you here. Not just Justin and Chrissy, but the staff, the elders, all of your pastors, and I hope that as you see them, that you'll encourage them and that you'll pray for them. Um, it has not been easy to lead in the church in the last few years. There's been a lot of pressure, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of enormous challenges as they've been trying to navigate things, and the leadership at Vox has done such a great job in leading you guys, and so I hope you'll encourage them and pray for them. Well, I'm excited this morning that I get to share in part of this series called Wild. Uh, we're looking at some Old Testament characters who, as they walked with God, had some wild encounters and wild experiences. And inherent in the title of this series is a hint that following Jesus is sometimes going to be a wild ride. In fact, sometimes when you read through the Bible, you discover that following God is not always safe, and it's not cushy, and it's not comfortable, and it's not predictable. In fact, if you sign up to be a follower of Jesus, along the way, you're going to be called to uh, take some risks with your life. You're going to be called to walk by faith and to trust God in times when you can't really understand what he's up to. You're going to be called to radical unselfishness and generosity. You're going to be called to forgive people who've actually hurt you. And at times in your life, God is going to say, hey, you might even be ridiculed and persecuted. Sounds like a kind of wild ride. And it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. And so today, we're going to look at a wild story from the life of King David in the Old Testament. But before we get there, I want to set up the main idea, the big idea of my message this morning by taking you to a moment in the life of Jesus. And I'm actually going to talk about a topic this morning that I, I was thinking this morning, I don't think I've ever heard a, a message on this particular Aspect. So I'm kind of excited to share it with you. But this moment takes place in Luke chapter 4. It takes place in the city of Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. The day is the Sabbath day, which was the day of rest and worship for the people of God. And on this particular Sabbath day, we find Jesus, as Luke says, was his custom. He's sitting in the synagogue. And on this particular day, he is going to read scripture. And so, you know, in those days, there was no iPads, no, uh, you know, Bibles like we have them. They just had scrolls. And so the attendant hands Jesus a scroll. And the Bible says he opens a scroll and he begins to kind of search through it until he finds this passage. And in the scroll were some writings from the prophet Isaiah. And when Jesus finds these words, he stops and he reads them out loud to the people in the synagogue that morning. And here's what he read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Bible scholars will say this is the moment that Jesus sort of goes public and he launches his public ministry. But it's interesting if you read in the passage that Jesus, you know, rolls back up the scroll, he hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. Now, a pretty short sermon, actually. And everybody's looking at him. In fact, the Bible says everybody's eyes were still glued at him like, okay, like we've heard about you. Do you have anything to say about all of this? And in that moment, Jesus just simply says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like, this is why I've come to the planet. But then most people stop the story right there. But if you look on, there's another verse, and it's where I want to focus for just a moment in Luke 4, where it says, on that day, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. Not the powerful words, not the inspirational words, not the insightful words, not the eloquent words that came from his lips, but the thing that captured their attention in that moment was that there was something about Jesus and the way he talked that was summarized by the word gracious. So I looked up in the dictionary the definition of the word gracious, and here it is. To be gracious is to be pleasantly kind, benevolent, compassionate, and courteous. Doesn't that sound good? If there was ever a moment in history when we as followers of Jesus need to be gracious, it's right now. In my lifetime, never have people been more angry, more ticked off, more outraged, more malicious, more vicious than they are right now. And that's just in the church parking lot. I feel like God gave me a test because if you ever want to see people who are not gracious, just go to an airport and hang around airplanes, right? So my wife and I were trying to come on Friday and we had a flight to Hartford and we got on our flight and we backed away from the gate and the pilot said, hey, we're going to be delayed a little bit because they're heavy traffic going into Chicago, so we got to wait till they say we can take off. And finally, 20 minutes later, we roll out to the edge of the runway, we get in line and we start just slowly down like where we're going to take off, but he never gets any speed. And then he just pulls off the runway and goes back and we find out that the windshield wipers aren't working and we have to go back to the gate to get the windshield wipers working. And then they have to wait for maintenance. And then finally, it's been a long delay. And so some of us now know we're going to miss our connection. So we get all get off the, the flight and everybody's, you know, bombarding the lady in customer service and then they let us know that they're going to book us on a later flight to Hartford because we're going to miss our connection in Chicago, but our bags are probably not going to make it with us. And so we go over to a whole other terminal. We walk literally a mile. We get over there and they say, yeah, listen, this plane's been taken out of service because of mechanical issues. And so we're looking for another plane to get you guys to Hartford. And so we finally, you know, get on a third plane now and get there. And I, I just felt like God was saying, okay, so you want to talk about being gracious. Let's see how you do with this one. <laughs> Fair test, Lord, I, I get it. You know, uh, years ago, there was an old sitcom. Most of you are way too young to remember this, but there was an old sitcom on TV called Cheers. Anybody here old enough to remember Cheers? Yeah. There was a guy on Cheers named Normie. And Normie would come in, and he always had, you know, kind of sage wisdom. But one day, it was like, Normie, how was your day? 
And Norm says, well, he said, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. <laughs> Maybe some of you can relate to that, right? Like, that's where you are. And I think, wow, just what would Norm think about 2023 and how everybody is treating each other? So I want to now turn to this story in the Old Testament it's the story of King David, but I need to set the context for you, all right? So in 1 Samuel 31, um, the nation of Israel is at war with their archenemy, the Philistines. Now, Saul was king of Israel at the time, and Saul had a great beginning, but his life really ends in tragedy and disobedience to God, and, and, and so he's at battle, and his sons are in battle with him, and on this day, one of the enemy uh, arrows finds its way to Saul and it pierces his, his body and he's going to die. In fact, as you read in 1 Samuel 31, he's going to fall on his sword and take his life. But not only is he killed that day, but also his son Jonathan and, his, and Jonathan's two brothers were also killed in that day. So the entire first family is wiped out, decimated. And back at the palace, pandemonium breaks out because... Um, in those days, if you were royalty and family of the deposed king, it was likely that you were also going to be executed by the new incoming king because you were a threat to the throne. And in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, I want you to listen to these words because this is what happens back in the palace on this particular day. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when Saul and Jonathan were killed at the battle of Jezreel. And when news of the battle reached the capital, the child's nurse grabbed him and she fled. But she fell and dropped him as she was running and he became crippled as a result. And so I want to talk about Mephibosheth, but so that I don't have to say Mephibosheth 50 times during the sermon, we're going to give him a nickname. We're going to call him Seth for the rest of this message. You good with that? All right, so um, in the panic and pandemonium of the escape, Seth's nurse drops him. Now, think about this. Here he is as a kid. He's born royalty. He's future king material. But on this day, his dad is killed. His grandfather is killed. His entire life is turned upside down. He's dropped as his nurse is running out of the palace. And the Bible says that he's going to be crippled for the rest of his life. So here, here he is in one moment running around like any five-year-old would be around the house. And in the next moment, he is a fugitive, he's disabled, he's exiled, and his life is in danger. And for the next 20 years, we don't know anything about what happens to Seth. Well, while Seth is living in isolation and fear and struggle, David, who had one time been the shepherd boy, is now the king of Israel. And his, soar, his fame is soaring, his influence is expanding, um, and we're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel 9. So I want you to follow along, you'll be able to see it up here on the screen, as this story begins and where these two lives begin to intersect. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness, there's that word gracious in Hebrew, for Jonathan's sake. He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. And he said, are you, are you Ziba? And the king asked. And he said, yes, sir, I am. Ziba replied. And the king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? 
If so, I want to show kindness to them. I want to show God's kindness to them. And Zebra replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. But David says, so where is he? He's in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. And so David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. Now, we're going to unpack this story a little bit further in a few moments. But from this story, I want to give you five observations about gracious people. And there are some practical challenges for you and I as we think about following Jesus in the wild ride of being God followers and what it looks like to do that well in 2023. All right? So here we go. Here's, here's observation number one. Gracious people are always on the lookout for people in need of kindness. David has now taken the throne. Um, He has gone from a no-name shepherd to becoming the most famous king in all of Israel's history. He's captured the hearts of the people. The land of the kingdom has expanded from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. There is peace in the land. The economy is good. If David was running for office, he surely would have gotten a second term. David is living the dream. And then there's this moment, I imagine David getting up early one morning and he's having his coffee and he's just reflecting on how good his life is and he's sort of overwhelmed by the goodness of God in his life. And then his mind goes back to his friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And out of the blue, one morning, David remembers this conversation that he and Jonathan had had where they made a covenant with one another that wherever life would take them, that they would show kindness to each other's family. And so David has this thought like, I wonder if anybody's still left from Jonathan's family. And so he knows that Ziba was a servant in Saul's household in the past. And so he calls him and he says, hey, is there, and notice this word in the verse, is there anyone, is there anyone left in Saul's house that I can show kindness to? And the word kindness is that word has said, it's the word grace or gracious. And David goes, is, is, it's not, is there anyone deserving? Is there anyone with military expertise? Is there someone that could serve in the cabinet of my government? No, it's just anyone. And I love that question because it is a question that drips with grace. Now think about this. Kings in those days were not known for their gracious treatment of other people. They were known as conquerors. They were known for putting their enemy down. They were not known for extending graciousness and kindness to the people around them. And so David says, is there anyone? And Ziba goes, yeah, there is. It's the son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth, but but he's disabled. If you kind of read between the lines, it's almost as if Ziba is saying, I'm not sure he's really going to fit in. Like, I'm not sure he's royal material. But David doesn't wait for someone to be deserving. David doesn't wait for the need to come to him. David goes searching and he takes initiative and he goes in pursuit of someone to be gracious to. And so I want you to know, and I want this to be true of my life, to know that you and I are not called to be reservoirs, but to be rivers. We are not called to simply be containers where we just soak in all the good blessings and God, I want all that you've got for me and all the the joy and the grace and the goodness and 
God says, yeah, but I want to make sure that as I extend grace to you, that now you are a river of my grace to other people and that you pass it on to them, that you and I are meant to be conduits of generosity. So let me ask you, how about you? What would that look like for you this week to notice that person in need, to not wait around for the need to come to you, but for you to actually take the initiative to go out of your way to extend graciousness and to meet a need and to show God's kindness to somewhere else, to be a gracious coworker with that person in your office that drives you nuts? Or how about that fellow student that just grates on your nerves and God says, hey, I want you to be gracious to them? Or that person who lives down the street or down the hall from you and God would tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I want you to be my gracious representation to them this week. Gracious people go after people in need. But here's a second observation I want to make. Gracious people are fueled by the grace that they've received. Gracious people are humble, and you want to know why? Because they're filled with gratitude for the grace that they have received in this age of entitlement. Can I tell you, gracious people stand out. Because they're not looking for what they can get. They're looking for what they can give. They're not striving to grab all that is in their rights They're striving rather to represent Jesus and extend his grace to others. And so when you are a Christ follower, you're overwhelmed by grace in two ways. One, you're overwhelmed by the grace that God has extended to you. In fact, look at Ephesians 1. He says, so we praise God for the glorious grace. You can even use the word graciousness. The glorious graciousness he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and graciousness that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Isn't it good news this morning that God has poured out his grace on you? That you are the recipient of a waterfall of God's graciousness and he has drenched you. And the Bible says in Ephesians 1 that God's grace is not in short supply. His account will never run out. There's always a surplus of grace no matter where you've been or what you've done or what's been true of your life in the past. And God is not frugal with his grace It is bound up in his heart to extend grace to undeserving people. And I hope that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you never get over what it means that when you were undeserving, God just reached out and with unconditional love and grace, he showered you with goodness. You see, gracious people hold in tandem these two realities. On one hand... We realize, just like Seth, we are broken people and in desperate need. And on the other hand, we realize that we are unconditionally blessed. And we hold both of those at the same time. (coughs) So you see also that we are not only recipients of God's graciousness, but we've also received grace from other people. So Seth's dad, Jonathan, had been David's best friend, and Jonathan had been unbelievably gracious to David. In fact, um, even though Jonathan was going to be the future king, and he knows now that God has chosen David to be the next king, in spite of that, Jonathan befriends David, and they forge a deep friendship, and... um, So much so that one day, Jonathan and David make a pact together, a covenant together. And in 1 Samuel 18, it says, 
Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe, giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. We don't really do that kind of stuff today. I mean, it, you know, to, to commit to one another in a friendship by exchanging gifts, right? Like, I think for guys, it would be feel a little bit odd if I go to my buddy and go, listen, I'm, in, I'm all in on this friendship, and I just want you to know I'm committed. And so because I'm committed, I'm giving you my Tom Brady signed Patriots jersey, <laughs> my favorite tennis racket, and my brand new Makita skill saw. I just want you to know how deeply I value our friendship. So that might be a little awkward for you to do today. But years later, David remembers Jonathan's gracious expression of friendship. And because he had been the recipient of grace, not only from God, but also from Jonathan, David now wants to pass that along. So cut back to the story for a moment. David dispatches his guys to go get Seth, and they show up at his house with a chariot. And it was never in Seth's plan to be found out. He figured he would live the rest of his life in isolation and anonymity. And all of a sudden, the king's men are at his door. And I'm sure that as he got into the chariot that day for the ride back to the palace, there were feelings of anxiety and stress and fear, not sure what was going to happen, if maybe his life would be taken. And as the chariot pulls up to the palace and they drag him in before the king and he kind of hobbles before the king, he takes this very humble posture and the Bible says that he bows down and he puts himself on the floor and he simply says to King David, I am your servant. You know what I love? Is I love David's response. You know what David says to Seth? Hey, you don't need to be afraid here. This is not a place of judgment. This is a place of grace. Did you know that the most often repeated words from the lips of Jesus were these words? Don't fear. Do not be afraid. And, he, and that brings me to my third observation about gracious people, is that gracious people speak gracious words. Gosh, are, is there a need for that today or what? You know, there's an old axiom that says, words create worlds. Do you realize this morning that you have been given the blessing of voice so that you can be the voice of blessing in other people's lives? But let's be honest, that's not how it is these days. That's not how life happens in 2023. We don't live in a grace-filled world. Gracious words don't roll off of people's lips, right? In this world, it is scratch and claw and grab for what is yours. No free lunch, no cutting in line, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to get what is mine. And what a contrast to read in Colossians 4 where we read, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. And I just want to say to every one of us, your words matter. And your words have staying power. I think about this great story in, in the book of Luke when in a service sort of like this, Jesus is teaching. And um, there's this moment, this woman who's sitting at the back. And the Bible says she was so disabled that she had been bent over for the last 18 years, unable to stand up straight. And there's this moment when Jesus is preaching and his eyes meet her eyes and he does something I would never do in a worship service. He just randomly calls her to the front. 
And then the Bible says he lays hands on her and he speaks to her and then he instantly heals her and she stands up straight for the first time in 20 years. Now, something crazy happens. You know what crazy happens? Is the leader of the synagogue stands up and goes, hey, we don't do that on the Sabbath. It's like one of the most asinine things ever in Scripture. This lady just got back her life and this guy wants to argue church policy, right? Right? And when Jesus is defending what he did that day, you know what he says? He doesn't call her a little old crippled Jewish lady. He says these words, this daughter of Abraham. Come on. And I just imagine as she walks out of the synagogue that day, standing up straight for the first time in 20 years, looking at people in the eye, noticing things she hasn't seen in a couple of decades, that ringing her in her ears are those words, Daughter of Abraham, daughter of Abraham. So how gracious are your words? A few years ago when we were living in California, there was a guy that was attending one of our church conferences from Norway. His name was Olaf. Now, it's not Olaf from the movie Frozen. This is Olaf from Norway. And I, I was so captivated by this old pastor who was still traveling into like the Himalayas to plant churches. And I wanted him to meet my kids, so we invited him to our home for dinner. And I'll never forget, I opened the door, and there's Olaf standing there, and he steps across the threshold, and as he does, he puts up both of his arms and his hands, and in Hebrew, he pronounces a blessing over our home. And for the next three hours, our entire family just sat captivated by this guy who told us stories, and he was so winsome and so interested in my kids who were in high school and college, and And he was just incredibly gracious. And we were impacted by that night because of his words. And sometimes we need to see in others what they can't see and believe in themselves. And we need to speak hope and life and words of encouragement and blessing into their world. That's what David does. He goes, hey, Seth, don't be afraid, man. This is a place of grace. Can I, can I give you a fourth observation, I think, from the story about um, gracious people? Gracious people always elevate human dignity. So here is Seth standing in front of David. David says, hey, don't be afraid, but Seth still can't get it. Like, it seems too good to be true. It's not possible that this could actually be a good thing. Like, surely something is going to turn and this is going to end up to be a disaster. Nothing about this makes sense. And so in the very next verse, you really get a sense of what Seth thinks of himself. So listen to his words. Seth says, Who is your servant that you would show kindness to a dead dog like me? This unexpected display of grace leaves Seth reeling. He's a nobody. He's a fugitive. He's a has-been. He's he's disabled. He has nothing to offer. And how does he see himself? He sees himself as a dead dog. And I remember when I was at Saddleback, and we, we took on this massive project as a church for 40 days to feed and minister to every homeless person in all of Orange County, California. And it was a huge undertaking. And I remember that when we went through some training with our local missions team and they were talking to us about how to, how to really be a blessing to them, I remembered that they talked about like, hey, our job is not just to hand out a bag of groceries or supplies 
or even to just pray for them, but we want to actually be present and we want to learn people's names and we want to sit down and we want to hear their story because when we look them in the eye and we say their name and we listen to their story, we give them dignity as people who are created in the image of God. And so when you and I treat people with graciousness, we actually elevate people's dignity and we restore a sense of the fact that they were created in the image of God and that they are on this earth for a purpose. All right, let me give you one final observation that comes out of the story. This is mind-blowing. Gracious people are actually lavish in their kindness. Again, it's not typical of the world we live in, right? We, we put a high value on justice. Like, we want people to get what they deserve. And, and we need a legal system. I get it. We need laws, and we need, you know, consequences when people break the law. I mean, that's how society works. But there's not anything particularly beautiful about that. But I'll tell you what is beautiful is extravagant, lavish expressions of grace, And we need those. So listen to what David says to Seth in this story. Seth, I'm going to give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul. And then get this. Seth, every day you're going to be welcome here and you're going to eat with my family at the king's table. In the place where 20 years earlier He experienced tragedy and loss and brokenness. In this moment, he gets grace and goodness extended to him. He would be part of the family. In fact, four verses later, it would say, Seth would eat at the table as one of David's sons. That's his new identity. This week, I was reading about a story that took place in Independence, Missouri, there's a, a young man named Rahim who works at a place called the, the um, what's it called, Pizza, what is, oh, Pizza Ranch. You've, you've all been there in Independence, Missouri. Pizza Ranch. And Rahim works the cash register. And you know if you work the cash register, you don't usually get any kind of tip. Well, this guy walks in, and his name is Charles, and he walks in, and he gives him a $5 tip at the cash register. And Rahim lights up like, Wow, he's never gotten a $5 tip just for working the cash register. Well, this so impacted this customer that he got to thinking about, man, I want to do something like lavish and gracious for Rahim. And so he goes back the next week and he gets Rahim by the shoulder and he says to him, hey, I appreciate your hard work. You have a great smile and a fabulous attitude and we don't get that much these days. And he starts counting out $50 bills, and he gives Rahim a $2,500 tip. Now, you would go, I can't do that. And it's not really about how much or even necessarily how extravagant. but, But I just started thinking, like, who in your world could you show some lavish grace to this coming week? Like, maybe there's a kid... That you know, they could use some help getting the money to go to summer camp. Or maybe for you, a lavish expression of grace would be for you to sit with someone who's going through chemo and just be with them during that hard time. 
Maybe you could clean somebody's house or pay somebody's electric bill who's out of work or take a meal and have dinner with a widow who lives down the hall from you or pay for somebody's coffee in the line at Starbucks. I was thinking about this and what my wife did a couple of years ago. We were at a conference, a church conference, and just down the the street from the church was this little seafood restaurant called Lola's and they have great seafood and um, they have a little dessert called beignets. And so one day after the conference, uh, we went down there, and we noticed there were, it was filled with people from the conference. And these were pastors and pastors' wives and church staff who had sacrificed and done what they could to get to this conference. And so my wife um, decided that she went up to the lady at the cashier, and she said, hey, I want to order beignets for everybody in the restaurant. Now, she didn't ask me. I, couldn't, I don't know what the deal is about that. But what could you do? What could you do that would, to somebody in your world, be an expression of over-the-top graciousness? And then, wouldn't it be awesome if in the midst of demonstrating that generosity that you would be able to share with them in a conversation about why you want to be gracious because of what God has done in your life that now you want to do the same in other people's lives. And so the final verse of the chapter says this. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He always ate at the king's table. And then it has this little postscript. And he was crippled in both feet. You and I are broken. And yet we've been invited to sit at the king's table. And now to give that as gracious expression to other people. So I have a friend a few years ago maybe 20 years ago, when the whole Promise Keepers movement was going on, it was sort of a Christian men's movement. And um, he was up on the platform in this stadium of 65,000 men who were all on their feet, arms raised, worshiping Jesus. And he looked down and to the left, there was a guy standing there, and next to him was a, a young man in a wheelchair. And he said he would later find out that that was this guy's son, And that his son, as a high school senior, had been er injured in a sporting uh, activity and um, had become a paraplegic. He began to have further medical complications, eventually ended up as a quadriplegic, couldn't speak and couldn't even see. And 65,000 men are on their feet, and this dad standing next to his son, the dad is heartbroken, and he, like, he just can't stand the fact that his son is not able to participate with all these other men. And so the dad, in a moment of spontaneous love, just reaches over, takes his arms, and sort of bear hugs his son, and struggles with him until he finally gets his son to his feet. And they're standing there face to face, And this dad is singing worship songs in the face of his son. And the the son lights up with this smile. And I've always remembered that story as like a, a challenge to me. That there are people all around me who desperately need to know, like, that they are loved by God. That we can look them in the eye and say... Hey, you matter, and you are worthy of God's love, and you are the recipient of the the pursuit of the king. We've experienced the grace. Now let's be gracious to other people.
So I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. We're going to pray in a few moments, but... Would you just bow your head with me? Because I have a feeling that there are some of us here who... Really, for us, the first step is not about being gracious to others. It's actually about receiving this grace from Jesus. And I just want you to know, if you're here, that God loves you, that Jesus died on the cross for you, that he cares deeply about you, and that he offers you this wonderful gift, not only of abundant life here, but eternal life in heaven. And maybe... For you, this moment is really about stepping across that line and saying, today, Jesus, I choose to follow you. Today, Lord, I accept that gift. I'm broken, undeserving, sinful. And today, I just declare that I am going to become a follower. Whatever that looks like and wherever the road leads, I am choosing today to follow you because I believe that you are who you claim to be. So maybe right now, right where you are in that place where you stand today, that you would just say, God, today, I receive the gift of eternal life and I choose to follow you. If you'd like to make that commitment today, if you go, gosh, that's where I am today, Lance, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But then there's a huge group of us in these rooms across the Vox campuses. I want to challenge you that this week, not next year, not next month, this week, that you would say, Lance, I will be open and look for that person where I can show extravagant grace. Would, if you would say, I'll, I'll commit to that, would you raise your hand? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. God, we thank you that we have been the recipients of your grace. Help us never to get over what it means that we are loved by you, that we have been given a place at the king's table. And now, Lord, may we be the gracious representative of your love to the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.